It's every finance minister's nightmare having to place the economy into deep freeze and pay millions of people to stay at home. Then, emerging from that lockdown, the economy experiences dual inflation and oil shocks, as well as the repercussions of a war on the European continent. In the midst of all this, our guest is the president of the Eurogroup of nations that use the single market currency. All issues that Pascal Donoghue has enjoyed over the last two years. Welcome, Minister, to our News Talk Business Summer Special Interviews. Can I start, Pascal? Which was worse, the shock of sudden lockdown and dealing with that or dealing with the current crippling inflation that we have at the moment? The pandemic. Uh, Because if I uh, look at the challenges that we are confronting, uh, our history and economic history and modern economic history does provide some guides regarding how these scenarios can unfold and what the appropriate policy response is. But there's no playbook for this. With the pandemic, there was little uh, history that was of help in guiding an economic response. The last time uh, we had a pandemic that shaped the world was the Spanish flu in the uh, 1913-1914. And even though that was a globalised economy, it was a profoundly different kind of globalisation to the one that we have with economies that were in a very different shape and level of modernisation than we have now. So by some way, uh, the pandemic posed a greater shock. And while our inflationary challenges, of course, are also severe and pose a challenge to many, the pandemic not only posed a gigantic economic challenge and a profound one, it was killing people. Talk to uh, me so for all those reasons, that pandemic was the moment the of test. Talk to me about what it was like in that first week in March. I still recall it. Uh, I was in London with the BBC and we suddenly dawned that this is going to be a very, very different world. And what would governments do if they were telling people to stay at home? What was it like in the Department of Finance in that first week in, in March? So we had a, a number of different uh reactions that were playing out simultaneously. The first one was that we were in an atmosphere of absolutely profound uncertainty. I think with the passage of time and the return of health to many, we can occasionally, and I think by and large this is a positive thing, we can retrofit into periods of great uncertainty, feelings of certainty that were not there at the time. Uh, The reality is across that period from March up to July, August, uh, we were in an atmosphere of profound challenge with the real risk that we were facing an Irish, European and global disruption to which the only comparison would have been the, uh, you know, the great crash that uh, took place after World War One. That... Is something that uh, the return of violence and wars is something that has been associated with pandemics that I didn't feel was likely then. But I did feel we were facing into a complete global economic disruption. So there, there was that feeling there. But running alongside that, Joe, was also the sense of this is the time in which having a healthy public finances and credit worthy state state this is the moment in which these things have to count so at the same time what we were trying to do really quickly 
is figure out how we would respond back and how we could critically do it really quickly. Do what do you think we're facing into now? Are we going to go into recession? So if I look at where we are with our growth forecasts and the performance in the economy at the moment, uh, all of those would point to a significantly lower level of growth uh, with the risks that have occurred rather than a recession. Uh, however, a recession is a risk. And since we move... Even in, in Irish GDP terms, because Irish GDP is kind of a funny indicator. Uh, well, the with GDP, of course, because it is difficult to measure and because it is difficult, therefore, to forecast it, it is um, particularly difficult to form a view there regarding what could happen to GDP in the future. I think it is still very possible that we would see GDP grow, but we would see it grow at a slower rate. But in other measures of how we would look at our economy, it is a risk. Is it a risk that is materialising at the moment? No. Is it a risk that we believe will happen for next year with the risks that are currently occurring within our economy? No. But could things happen uh, elsewhere in the global economy later on this year that could trigger, trigger these risks? The answer is yes. And I've been saying that now for some months. Something that's helping us obviously is just the amazing tax revenues we're getting just in the first six months of this year, 7.4 billion ahead of last year. Uh, now, the budget package you're planning is is 6.7 billion, 1 billion in tax cuts, 5.7 billion in extra spending. Can't you do a bit more when, when the tax take is so strong? I mean, why, for example, do you feel the need to run a surplus this year when a few months ago we, we weren't expecting that we'd be running a surplus? So most of the additional tax receipts that you're referring to there, Gavin, we had predicted. Uh, we're only 1.4% ahead of where we expected to be in the year. Uh, we expected to see a really rapid increase in tax take in the first half of the year uh, because of our uh, the very high level of post-pandemic savings that we had within our economy that we expected to see spent. So yes, the figures are a significant increase versus a year ago, the vast majority of which we expected to happen. Why do I believe there's a case to be made for your public finances being in balance or even, if possible, running a surplus? Because of all the risks both of you have just asked me about. Uh, your questions pose the greatest indicator of the uncertainty that is there and even, Gavin, in your question to me there about the volatility of GDP, that's not an esoteric issue for us. It matters in terms of employment, investment within our economy. And for all those reasons, to be in an app, to be in a position of balance within your public finances or even a surplus is the best insurance policy to changes that could yet take place in sovereign bond markets. It's going to be very interesting and the pressure put on you next year when you are talking about creating a rainy day fund uh, when people will say listen our spending power has been eroded like like nothing in the past generation the pressure on you to continuously open the checkbook is going to be immense So what I've done is acknowledge that a rainy day fund could play a role in how we manage any of these risks but the government hasn't made the decision yet nor have I made the recommendation regarding whether it will be reactivated later on in the year. That's only a decision we'll be able to take after the summer. And you're right, uh, the pressure is always there to spend more and to tax less. And what I and the government will need to get right, which we will work on as we form Budget 2023, is to get the balance right between doing enough now to help with all of the pressures that we know households and businesses are facing at the moment 
but not creating a new set of risks that could materialise and materialise within the lifetime of this government. And what I want to do at nearly any cost is avoid doing something in one budget that I have to take back in the next uh, because the consequences of that socially and from a confidence point of view are too big. So that means we should expect sort of one-off measures like the electricity bill rebate rather than sort of everyone getting another fiver a month on, on all the various social welfare payments. Is that what you mean? Uh, no, uh, it'll be a mixture in terms of what we will be doing as we approach the budget. The point I was making is that we went through a period of our economy in which lots of changes that were made when times were going well had to be then undone when times got tough again. And that just compounded the economic difficulties that we were facing. In terms of your point, Gavin, regarding what the budget will look like, it will be a mixture of things that I hope are one-off or we don't have to repeat on many occasions, combined with other measures, for example, with regard to social welfare, with regard to personal taxation, that we will put in place, that we will then be able to sustain in the time ahead. And getting that mixture right and getting the allocation of funding right between the two of them will be what myself and Minister McGrath will do right after the summer. Can I ask you about the attitude culturally in Ireland towards companies and businesses making a profit? Is there still residual antipathy towards small companies making a profit? And I say that because we speak on the programme, myself and Gav, to a lot of SMEs. And they, I mean, I was only speaking to one yesterday and he said, I get the impression that we're always looking out for voters, we're always looking out for consumers, but people, uh, you know, don't really care about businesses because they all assume mentally that they're all stinking rich. Well, I care about them. That's why I've maintained a 12.5% corporate tax rate for smaller companies. It's the reason why I've changed the EIS scheme to help entrepreneurs. It's the reason why, uh, for example, we are... um, examining the future now of the KEEP programme, uh, which is how we tax share options to, in particular, help small and medium-sized companies. It's the reason why we support Enterprise Ireland in the way we do. So I absolutely do. But do you think the public are a little bit antipathetic? No, I don't, but I think the uh, many parties in the Dáil are. Uh, I actually believe uh, the Irish public well understand the role of small, medium-sized companies and also larger companies in our economic fortunes. They well understand the role they play in providing jobs and then creating the wealth that the Irish state depends upon. Uh, But um, most of the parties in opposition, if not, frankly, all of them, never pay any reference to them, never pay, show any recognition of the role of them. They haven't worked for giant international companies like Procter & Gamble. You have. Do you think that helped you in your in your thinking? Hugely. I am enormously indebted to having had the experience to work in the private sector for nearly 10 years before I decided to become a politician. And uh, there's no way I would have had the experience that I've had in politics if I hadn't worked for the private sector first for a decade. Just to go back to the, the topic of small companies and the 12.5% rate, the whole OECD reform process, it's a bit of a mess at the moment. We, we've seen Hungary is kind of dragging their feet on, on the, the bringing it in in the EU. Question marks over whether it's going to get through the US Congress. There's obviously elections uh, coming up there. Is there a chance it mightn't happen at all? I believe it will happen. These processes always look messy. Give me an example of a multilateral process involving 130, company, 130 countries 
that's elegant, that runs smoothly, that never has any hiccups. Uh, this uh, process is unprecedented in terms of its global complexity and it will deliver. Uh, I believe later on in the year we will ultimately see agreement in the European Union on a minimum effective tax directive and I believe America will implement the changes in their corporate tax code in their guilty rate, which is the global minimum effective tax rate that American companies pay, that they will deliver that later on in the year. So I believe the race part of the OECD process will happen, maybe later than would have been anticipated, but it will happen. And then the other pillar, which is regarding what is taxed where, that may take more time, Gavin. Yeah. Uh, but just because something is enormously complex uh, and doesn't always proceed in a in an orderly or planned way, doesn't lessen the value of us or the the um, the, the 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 scale of what it yeah. has achieved. Isn't isn't it remarkable though that? We've an Irish Minister for Finance talking in this way about getting rid of the twelve and a half percent rate, which a couple of years which ago is going to cost them the, two billion. The rhetoric, euros. the rhetoric was pretty much over my dead body. Will Ireland give give this rate up? So, just talk to me a bit about your whole decision making process around deciding to sign up to this deal. And it doesn't actually seem to have got that much of a backlash. But uh, you know, when you were making the decision, you didn't know that. So. Um, just give us a bit of an insight into that whole process. So, so firstly, uh, we've retained the 12.5% for any company up to 750 million euro worldwide. Uh, that's registered here in Ireland. And then secondly, on the process itself, I mean, it, it took the best part of five years of um, my professional life as Minister for Finance. I mean, from the or day... arguing I, over two words. Uh, it ended up at that. Yeah, at the words at least regarding what was going to be in the agreement. But up to that point... It has been consumed and rightly consumed a huge share of my time, particularly of my kind of non-public time in terms of the work that was going on with my officials, other governments and the OECD. And ultimately, the decision that I reached was that Ireland did need to be in this agreement. You can't look to maintain a reputation for stability and be outside an agreement that everybody else is inside but then what was the um, the terms for going in? And then as stability matters, it's why being clear about what our rate would be in the future was the key thing. Uh, along with the management of the pandemic uh, and the economic consequences of that, it and the decision to manage and enter the corporate tax deal are probably the two biggest things I've done to date. Uh, and I think the huge amount of additional FDI that Ireland has attracted since then shows absolutely that it was the right decision. Uh, look at where we are with companies like like Intel, the additional life sciences investment that has happened, the decision of TikTok. All of this points to the fact that this was a process that everybody understood and they believe that the compromise that I negotiated moves this thing forward globally but maintains Ireland's reputation for stability. And competitiveness. Britain is in the process of electing a new uh, Conservative Party leader and possibly, probably, new uh, Prime Minister. Are you surprised uh, that none of the people that are applying for that job think it's a good idea to inch closer to the European Union in any way? And also, are you surprised that Brexit hasn't been the car crash for Irish companies that some had predicted? So I'm not surprised regarding the stance that the candidates are advocating with regard to Brexit. 
given who their electorate are. It's a very small electorate. With clear views on the topic. And then regarding Irish companies, I am encouraged to date regarding how Irish companies with support from this and the last government have managed where we are with Brexit, particularly the supply logistics of Brexit, where our ports and our exporters have done a great job. But it is far too early in the day to be able to... Rest on laurels. Or be complacent about where we are. Far too early in the day. Um, Michael Noonan famously, uh, at least for me anyway, described Brexit, Brexit as a process, as a journey. It's not is one that will keep on unfolding and we've a long way to go before we can all be confident that from an Irish exporter point of view or SME point of view that we've fully managed our way through us but to date it's really encouraging about what has happened and it just points to the extraordinary innovation and flexibility of Irish exporters particularly our food exporters who've done a brilliant job responding back to what has happened within the UK. Do you want to be Taoiseach? No. Next question. Do you want, <laughs> do you want the quote-unquote big job in Europe uh, that I, I keep reading uh, people think you, you uh, will move on to whenever you finish being Finance Minister? I've got a big job in Europe. I have the enormous privilege of being President of the Eurogroup. First Irish person to ever do it. There's only ever been four Presidents of the Eurogroup. I'm the fourth one. I'm enormously humbled and privileged to do it. Uh, I want to do what I'm doing for as long as the uh, the Tornishta uh, wants me to do it. Do you think when the Tornishta becomes the Taoiseach again that you might be moved from the Department of Finance to something else? You'll have to ask Leo Radker that question, Gavin. That's a matter for him. Why don't you want to be the Taoiseach? Because I've got a amazing job that I find incredibly uh, fulfilling. Uh, that allows me to make a big difference. And I uh, have put all my energy into doing that really well. And uh, the job is so demanding uh, because it's such an important one uh, that of its nature, it allows little time to be thinking about other things. Winning the Eurogroup job was a pretty great achievement really for a small country like ours. So maybe we could talk a bit more about why you decided you should go for that in the first place because you weren't a favourite but you managed to prevail in the end. Yeah, I wanted to go for it because uh, I believed I could do it well if I got the post and because at that point I'd been a member of the Eurogroup for around three years. Uh, The average tenure of a finance minister in Europe at the moment is less than 18 months. So to be there for three years gave me, I felt, a fair bit of experience. And uh, I believe that personally I had some qualities that would allow me to do the job. Like but what? I, uh, well, experience uh, as a finance minister. A lot of time in my political life spent negotiating and reaching compromises. Does it help being Irish? Yes. And that's just the other aspect of it that actually being a politician from a small country, uh, ironically, is of immense help um, in trying to make the case for achieve roles in Europe and then doing them well. Uh, Because if we want to achieve outcomes, if we want to make progress on something, you can't achieve it by dint of your economic weight. You have to achieve it by dint of professionalism, of making the case 
and of soft power. And they're things that small countries have to know well. Do we overestimate our soft power? Because I've spent a lot of time in Brussels and uh, a lot of people say to me, nobody dislikes the Irish. They seem to rub people up the right way. But maybe we're just tin ear to the facts about us. Maybe Irish people adopt an attitude of, ah, sure, it'll be grand, because that was the way. And I just wonder what what the, what is the perception now? So I think the um, the the attitude of "I sure it'll be grand" is one that you can't adopt when you're a small open economy with everything that's going on around us and all the discussions and questions you've pointed to me of whether the rainy day fund, how much we spend, what we tax, all point to how we can be prepared and how we can be resilient with the challenges that we face. I think you'll have few greater examples of the value of resilience than what we can do during a pandemic. In terms of the attitude towards Ireland within the European Union, uh, I believe uh, as a country we have been able to demonstrate our how Europe has, I believe, enriched Ireland, but also the contribution that Ireland has made to the European Union. And I think it goes both ways. But it's something we work really hard at, maintaining our reputation uh, and uh, putting our good people into key roles within Europe. I believe with everything that is happening all around us in other parts of the world, our membership of the European Union, our membership of the Euro and our membership of the single market is the single biggest uh, protection that our country has in managing a world that is increasingly volatile. I ask because there is an issue with begrudgery in this country. Um, Very recently on our programme, we interviewed the Deputy Director General, Secretary General uh, of the European Parliament, and he told an anecdote which I thought was really petty. Uh, Basically, Peter Sutherland, youngest ever Attorney General, was due to be the President of the European Commission. It had been agreed by Helmut Kohl and François Mitterrand They went to the then foreign minister, who we approached for comment, Dick Spring, and Albert Reynolds, and they said, oh, yes, of course. But in reality, they said, over our dead body. They didn't. So we had an opportunity to become the president of the European Commission, a really, really senior post on the world stage, and it was party political begrudgery that made that not happen. Well, I'm I'm not not familiar with that with us uh, particular episode. Um, uh, obviously, Peter Sutherland went on to have an enormously distinguished career, including as Director General of the World Trade Organization. Um, but I could point to lots of other examples in which uh, Irish politicians and Irish political parties have made sensible decisions to try to support Irish people in European jobs. Uh, and if I look in particular at Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and uh, I'm only saying this because they're older political parties than the Green Party here in Ireland, mm-hmm. putting forward good people uh, to do important jobs in Europe is in the DNA of both parties. Uh, I'm obviously uh, clearly not in Fianna Fáil, but when I hear Fianna Fáil speak about Europe, the European Union, La Masse, uh, the contribution of many of their seminal politicians to Europe, they do speak about it in the same way as I do within Fine Gael. And they take the institutions of the European Union deeply seriously. And that's core to the DNA of both those parties. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you so much for joining us on the News Talk Summer Series. 
and uh, we look forward to having you on it again when it's slightly more day-to-day news. Thank you very much, Joe and Gavin. Thank you. Breakfast Business with Enterprise Ireland on News Talk.